Well, good morning, and it's lovely to see you all this morning. This week we're continuing our series on community, um, and our theme today is unity. And we're going to look at the impact that unity, or maybe we should say disunity, can have on community and what it means to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Today is going to provide us in kind of half an hour, 40 minutes, the opportunity to scratch the surface of these issues. But David Whitlock has very helpfully provided a set of notes for those of you who are part of a connect group that will start to explore these issues in a bit more detail. And if you're not in a Connect group and you want the notes, I'm sure that Marion Mahan in the church office will be happy to provide them for you. So we're going to start by framing our thoughts by looking at some Bible passages, and Shirley has very kindly agreed to come and help me read them. And it's quite um, opposite, really, that today we're going to look at um, Bible passages from the New International Version and from the Message, and those of you may know that Eugene Peterson, who authored the Message, died this week the age of 95. So although I didn't know this when I picked these readings, I think it's wonderful that actually we have an opportunity to share. And what we're going to do is we're going to echo each other. So I'm going to read the passage in the NIV version, and then Shirley is going to read it again in the message version. So there's a kind of direct um, contrast. And we're going to start with John 17, 22 to 23. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I'm praying not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. The same glory you gave me, I gave them. So they'll be unified and together as we are, I in them and you in me. Then they'll be mature in this oneness, and give the godless world evidence that you sent me and loved them in the same way you loved me. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all. In the light of this, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up in here, a prisoner for the master, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run on the road God called you to travel. I don't want any one of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want any one of you strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily 
pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences, and quick at mending fences. And you were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction, to stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they are happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of that. Thank you. Thank you, Shirley. Let's see if I can switch off the microphone. It's fascinating, isn't it, to have scripture read like that with two different translations side by side. I think I kind of really, really enjoyed the way that the, the message version just kind of expanded and filled out. Because there are passages, aren't there, time to time that you have that you know quite well and it's very easy just to let them to gloss over you and just wash over you without actually engaging with them. I think it's clear to see there's more than one sermon that could be preached on Christian unity. However, our main focus today is going to be all about unity in the church. I'm trying to break this down into manageable chunks. We're going to look at a little bit of context, then we'll look at some really kind of like nitty gritty, pithy kind of practical advice. And then we'll look at some more broader pictures that can inspire us as individuals and as a fellowship as we strive to be united in Christ. Unity is a bit of a sensitive subject, isn't it, in the Christian church? Largely because we seem to be rather poor at it. I think I was reading on the internet, there's something like more than 3,000 Christian denominations in the UK. In fact, I can remember a few years ago there was a, a big, big article in one of the newspapers about the fact there was a, a street in Brixton where there's 27 different Pentecostal denominations in the same street, um, which takes some, some doing. But it is one of those areas which is quite easy to poke at and hit a sore point. We don't have to look too far to see individual Christians who seem to delight in disunity who like to expose fractures and divisions, who gossip or share in the press or on social media. Arguments seem to rage about what people do or do not believe, or whether they act in a certain way or not. This seems to be very, very far from the idea that Paul outlined in our readings today. 
Similarly, the history of the global church is not really a lot better. You could say the disciples started to argue before Jesus died, and Christians have been finding reasons to argue ever since. So why unity? Why does the Bible have clear and direct references that call us as Christians to be united? How does what we believe and do affect how we act towards each other? How do we deal with difference and contestable issues? These are all important questions, and the church has, doesn't it, quite a history in those areas. Now, this is one of my, I do kind of like a good kind of icon and image, and that's one of the Council of Nicaea. Now, the establishment of the Apostles' Creed and the, the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed, the historic statements of faith, all originated from formal gatherings as the early church tried to work out how to deal with the different competing views of who Jesus was and what the core beliefs of Christianity were and are. And I think you can see there, there was quite a lot of them, which kind of gives you a hint that maybe they had quite a lot of disagreement they were trying to resolve. But what was evident from the early church was this. The early church fathers took really, really seriously the goal that Jesus set for them. That is for all of them to become one heart and one mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And we also then should take unity seriously. Unity in the church is important, as David notes in his Connect Group um, information, because it reflects the very character of God. It exemplifies what Christ came to do. Dwight L. Moody, the American evangelist, once said, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people are divided. Let me just kind of go over that again. And I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. Where there's disunity in the church, there'll be no growth, or at best the church will be unhealthy. So let's unpick that in a little more depth. Why does disunity occur in the local church? Now, our Bible readings reflect at least four different types of relationship breakdown which can cause disunity and four actions that can be taken to prevent this occurring. The first, if you look at the top left, is the delightful human trait of labelling people. This labelling is, is inevitably used to categorise people and sometimes to separate us from them. What's the first question you asked when you meet somebody for the first time? Quite often it's going to be, well, what job do you do? Or where do you live? Are you married? Or are you single? Do you have children or not? The church absolutely loves labels. Are you a conservative evangelical? A charismatic evangelical? Do you belong to the evangelical mainstream or accepting evangelicals? Even more, are you an Anglo-Catholic? Well, hang on, are you an orthodox Anglo-Catholic or a liberal Anglo-Catholic? As I've said, the problem with these labels is that they can categorise you and that categorisation can be used to separate you. In our reading, we see this challenged by Paul. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. 
This is prophetic, isn't it? It's subversive. It challenges the status quo. It's also deeply practical advice and deeply challenging. You could rephrase it like this. Don't let your relationships be bound by your own view of yourself. Or don't let your relationships be bound by colour, caste, creed or gender. Pay no attention to labels. People see unity. The question for us friends is what do they see when they look at us? Do we allow our interactions, our friendships, our fellowship to be determined by the labels we give to people? Many of you will know that I'm friends with Ian. In worldly terms, we wouldn't move in the same circles. We come from very different backgrounds, had very different upbringings, yet we're friends and we can testify that we're brothers in Christ. People, our readings tell us, can see unity. It's visible. There is a witness to the power of the gospel that can be seen in the relationships that we have with each other. Where we are mixing and meeting together and interacting as a body of believers, people look at that and see that. And I would ask us a question, what else in society and what other group of people in society now can you genuinely see a mixture of gender, race, social class, background outside of the Church of Christ? In a world that becomes more divided and more separated by groupings and classifications, the church needs to put its hand up and say, hang on a second, we are united in something different. We're united in Christ and we will not be bound by those cultural and social assumptions. Now, second one, bottom right, in or out, binary thinking. You could say this was seeing the world in black or white. Here people can be included or excluded on a single issue, many of which are not critical to our faith, as David said last week, or our communal life together. In some communities, you're either in or out, depending on what you believe. As a fellowship, we need to work hard, don't we, at creating a church where we allow each other to express and explore our faith to genuinely seek and question, where you're not in or out, depending on what you believe at any given point. Our church needs to be a safe place to question and to receive teaching. This is especially true for our children and our teenagers as they explore what it means to love God and to live in a secular, diverse world, and to exist in a global church where people believe many, many different things. Friends, we do our teenagers a disservice if we send them off to university believing there's only one way to do Christianity. Because there isn't. There's many different ways. What we need to do is to send them off to university or to the world of work equipped with the skills to actually see Jesus in other people and to see what the difference Jesus makes in our day-to-day life. True Christian unity comes and calls us to be a community of love, demonstrating the unity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
and reflecting what we read in our readings, our one Lord, our one faith, and our one baptism. Live a life worthy of calling that you have received, Scripture encourages. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And that's a challenge, isn't it? We need the Holy Spirit to help us with that. Because I am, by me, no means humble. I'm not often gentle. I'm certainly not patient, especially when my blood sugar is low, as our trip to Rome with my wife proved when my blood sugar did kind of dip. Um, we need to bear with each other in love. It's important, but it takes hard work. Thirdly, unresolved conflict or differences lead to conflict. Differences can simmer, can't they, below the surface, creating tensions that can explode and create disagreement, disunity, and at worst, fragmentation and schism. Many of these conflicts arise because we can become judgmental. Now, Jesus was very aware of this. <coughs> In Matthew 7, he reminds people to be self-aware of their own faults before judging others. How about taking the plank out of your own eye? he says, before looking at the speck in your brother's eye. Again, a practical action. And again, a practical action that takes movement on our half and courage. Are you aware of your own faults? Am I aware of my faults? In Matthew 5, Jesus reminds his listeners that they should be reconciled before they go before the altar. If we've been judgmental, and this has impacted on the way we treat people, we need to ask forgiveness, not only of God, but of those we've judged and separated ourselves from. We need to be reconciled. Be alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. Fourthly, Another cause of disunity is when we allow loyalty to a group or circle of friends to take precedence over our loyalty to Christ. Cliques and exclusive friendship groups do not reflect Christian values. They exclude, they don't include. Any group within a church that excludes others or supports, hides or ignores the negative actions of one group out of loyalty to the group dishonours Christ. And we've seen in the press on a national and international scale the absolutely appalling consequences that can happen as a result of that. God calls us to stay together inwardly and outwardly. And I think Eugene Peterson got it absolutely right there. We cannot believe one thing and act in a different way. If I put my hand up and say, yes, I am a Christian... There are some kind of basic things that come with that. <clears throat> and that includes acting in a certain way. It is dishonest and unjust of us to pretend that we believe certain things or do certain things if we then act in a different way. An inward and outward alignment of our hearts is needed. Now, these examples are hard to chew on, aren't they? It's hard sometimes to put our lives under the light of Scripture and have a good hard look at it. This sermon was particularly challenging for me to write because I felt I was just looking at it in a mirror. Because every time I read something, I thought, oh, hang on a second, that's me. 
you know, and it, you know, I'm not standing here from a position of strength. Speak to Debbie, she'll fill you in. Um, but the point is, that's what scripture does. It reveals, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It drives straight to the marrow and bone of the situation. But what it also does, as we recognize from our worship today, is it tells us that we worship a great God. A God who speaks to us of a better way to live our lives. A God who speaks of giving us the power to live our lives in new ways through the Holy Spirit. To live lives that are immeasurably different from the lives that we would have lived had we not become a Christian. That's certainly my testimony, and I'm sure it is yours as well. The transformational power of Christ gives us the strength and the ability to live our lives in a different way. But it is a challenge for us, and we have to choose to live the right way every single day. So let's move on. Much of what we've said shared reflects the characteristics of tribalism. Our Bible readings remind us that we're called by God to unity, not disunity, to togetherness, not separation, to fellowship, not tribalism. Tribalism comes with its own language. It can strike within a church and it can strike between a church. And much of tribalism focuses around what people believe and the, has then has an impact on how they act. God in Christ calls us to a different way, to a relational way and to a way of humility and gentleness. You can probably recognise some of that. And I have to say, if I'm honest, the evangelical church has been particularly awful at this particular issue. And having worshipped in churches, churches that have looked down their nose at churches down the road because they were liberal or weren't Bible-believing or weren't this or that... It's had a real impact on relationships across the church as a whole. One thing is you work with a broad range of Christians, as I do, that you start to see that the Holy Spirit is quite capable of working in a whole range of different ways. And usually he doesn't pay a lot of attention to what the badge that goes with the church. Actually what he pays attention to is the heart and how people act. So tribalness comes with its own language, but we're called to a different way, to a relational way, a way of humility and gentleness. <clears throat> That's a boundary marker that marks the entrance to the land of one of the major biblical cities. Now, the whole point of boundary markers were to tell people they were going into the territory that was owned by a certain person or a certain town. It marked out what kind of rules and what kind of things were expected by people when they went into that area. It didn't dictate what the person that was going into the area believed, but it did explain what the ground rules were for the territory they were passing through. And this is really quite a good picture of friendships, of relationships that lead to unity. Agreement and disagreement is recognised and respected. Relationship is maintained and developed. Love, respect and kindness is modelled. The problem, friends, comes when the boundary stone becomes a shibboleth, where a particular belief is held so strongly that only people who believe it are allowed passage. The belief becomes a password to acceptance. People are excluded because they believe different things, interpret scripture in different ways, eat different foods. Relationship is limited to those who believe the same as us. But here we just need to take a little step aside. 
because we face a challenge, don't we? We, like all churches, have beliefs. These beliefs characterise who we are and what we stand for. In wider society, even within the church, even within our own fellowship, some of these beliefs might be contestable, but they are what make us Christian, possibly even what makes us Baptist. But they define who we are. So how then do we ensure we remain committed to unity while maintaining our core beliefs? We're not called, the Bible tells us, to unity at all costs. There is a very kind of big theological word that I could insert at that point, but I can't remember it, so I will. But neither should we exclude people on things that are not core to our faith and our belief. Now, at which point we just pop back to the Council of Nicaea, because that's exactly what the Council of Nicaea was doing. It's exactly what the early church fathers were doing. The church, beautiful, diverse, people of different cultures, different races, different creeds. They looked differently. They ate different foods. They all muddled around together, and they started to believe and interpret the Bible and interpret Scripture in different ways. And it was the Council of Nicaea and all of those other councils that start to say, well, actually, what are the things that binds us together rather than the things that pull us apart? And that's what it's all about. How do you maintain unity with the wonderful diversity of race, culture, creed and gender that makes up God's church? A church where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for we're all one in Jesus Christ. The Nicene Creed, and there it is, outlined the core beliefs of the church. But as we've seen, unity is as much about action as it is about belief. So where are the images, the pictures, the metaphors that can inspire us as a fellowship and as individual Christians that inspire us to strive for Christian unity? I've got four to share with you. Each one probably could be a sermon in its own right, but I would get killed at this point if I decided to give you a sermon on each one. So you're going to get very, very brief ones. This is Rublev's Trinity. It reminds us that God is in relationship. The Trinity is relational. And a relationship with God, one in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is open to all who believe in Jesus Christ, all who confess their sins, who acknowledge the Lordship of Christ in their lives. There is a place at the table for all, and the interpretation of the icon is, is that the space you can see between the two characters at the front is a space for you. It's a space for me. It's a welcoming space. It's an open space. It's a space where there are no exclusion criteria, where there's just a welcome to come and sit in communion, in fellowship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have given them the glory that you gave me, Jesus says, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they might be built, brought to complete unity. The second image is of Jesus, Lord of all. This is um, Jesus and the abbot Menace, or Jesus and his friend, 
It's the only icon that's known of where Jesus actually has his hand on the shoulder of the person he's standing next to. The key thing here, friends, is simply this. If Jesus' hand is on my shoulder, it's on the shoulder of all the brothers and sisters I have in Christ, whether I share their theological beliefs, their cultural background, or their life experiences. I can't expect to have exclusive rights on the time of Jesus. Jesus is not solely my God. He's not my personal possession. He's Lord of all. You were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. And as we walk, we walk with Jesus, like the disciples on the Emmaus Road, with his hand on our shoulder. He walks with you as much as he walks with me. And when we disagree, it's good to remember that. Third image is that of the church as the body of Christ. Here I've chosen the image of an embryo. The embryo contains all that is needed for the good of the body. Each cell created to work in unity, promoting growth, the creation of new life. As it grows and forms into a body, it has the capacity to regenerate, to heal itself. If one part does not develop properly or ceases to work, its unity and its purpose is diminished. The body is one of the most powerful biblical images, an image of unity. If you hurt, we all hurt. If you are in need, we will support you. If you need healing, come to the body to be prayed for. If God wishes to speak to us, he does through the body, through the gifts, the charisms he has placed among us, through preaching and teaching through prophecy and words of knowledge, through discernment, service, love and intercessory prayer. The body is the visible sign of the unity we have in Christ Jesus. But more than that, it's a visible sign of Christ himself, living and active in this world. Fourth image is one I've spoken about before. Table fellowship. A table without people is of little value. Table fellowship draws people together. They meet over shared food, sharing hospitality. They may never have met before, yet they may leave at the beginning of a lifelong friendship. Table fellowship is deeply practical, truly radical. It compels us to share a table in the name of Christ with those whom society separates us from by class, custom, culture or practice. It visibly demonstrates to us that God is a God of love, that all can come to him and know salvation through Jesus Christ. Everybody can have a seat at the table. I love this image. The outstretched arm, the active discussion bound by the conventions of hospitality. The stranger always welcome at the table, treated as an honoured guest. Table fellowship reminds us that the shared belief in God calls us to go places we would not normally go, to sit with people we would not normally sit with, even those we profoundly disagree with. All in the cause of the gospel, all in the cause of Jesus, to promote peace and to promote unity that flows from God in Christ. The ultimate example of table fellowship is found in the Lord's table, It's an open table 
open to all those who love the Lord Jesus. It's the ultimate visual demonstration of our Christian unity. It's where Christian action and belief meet. When we walk to the Lord's table, we're unified by the fact that we do so not because of our own efforts, our own skills, our own wealth or ability, but because of the grace of God. Standing before the Lord's table, we're not asked the questions of tribalism. We're not questioned on our views on the second coming, or whether we believe in infant or adult baptism, or what our views on human sexuality are. We're simply asked, do you believe? Are you clean? And at the table, we're presented with the solution to our uncleanliness. In our remembrance of Jesus, we remember him who lived, who died, him who was raised to life, the one from whom we're redeemed, the one in whom we are set free and made new creations. This is truly unifying, isn't it? It's what binds us together. As the hymn writer said, just as I am without one plea, but that thou blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. And as each of us comes and walks to the table, we all come, and we all walk to the table together, because we can only come through the grace of God and in the power of God. So in conclusion, Unity is at the heart of the gospel and the relationship with God itself. Maintaining unity within the local church is a challenge. It's a real challenge. It involves belief and it involves action. The two cannot be separated. But it's a challenge that we're called to and equipped for by the power of the Holy Spirit. To bear with one another in love. To mend our differences. To live in peace to be a visible demonstration of unity so those who come into this place who do not know Jesus will see Jesus. So let's then together, in community, commit ourselves to be unified in Christ so that we might be a witness to him. Amen.